0: John chapter 3 is the most read chapter in the Gospel of John and is one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible. In fact, I would venture to say that the 16th verse of this chapter is the most quoted verse of any verse in the Word of God. How is it that the meaning of it, though, is often missed, misunderstood? That great verse on salvation, so quoted, so well known, and yet... The true meaning of salvation and the, the means of salvation is often missed. The teaching, the necessity of the new birth. How can this be? Our Lord's overthrowing the money changers tables performed in the miracles that he performed afterwards. No doubt caused, caused quite a stir among the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. Questions were flying. Discussions were being had. Meetings about who this man was, where did he come from, by what authority was he doing these things who had caused such an uproar that these meetings were being held, and the the ruling body that that men of, a group of seventy men who oversaw all the affairs of Israel were meeting and uh, discussing this renegade, this teacher, this whoever he was, if anyone has any knowledge of the Bible, he knows that the Bible teaches the necessity of being cleansed from sin. We don't go very far. Just a few verses in the Scripture when we discover there's a horrible problem, that man has sinned, and that sin grows. In the first family, the very first siblings, there's a murder. And we go on and on, and it gets more and more sordid because man has fallen into sin. And so we see the reality of sin, and then we see the necessity of salvation. That the soul, once released from this body and this earthly life, does not cease to be, but lives on eternally. Benjamin Franklin, who was mesmerized by the itinerant British preacher George Whitfield, He would often go here and preach. George Whitfield was an amazing man. Thousands would flock to hear him. And it was not because of his style or because of his show or his program he he preached with the power and the authority, of the power of the Holy Spirit, like an apostle out of the New Testament pages. And people would flock to hear him. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said that Whitfield was the greatest preacher of all time. Both in England and in America, the, the, the thousands would come. And his voice, they say, was clear as the bell. Over 25,000 could sit and hear him preach or stand and hear him preach. He often preached in the open air without, of course, amplification in those days. George Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin often corresponded. Benjamin Franklin was amazed at his vocal abilities and his brilliant mind. Uh, he was uh, amused and uh, entertained by his grasp of knowledge and his uh, n- uh, way of delivering the truths that he preached, although for all practical purposes it seems that Benjamin Franklin was never moved savingly by them, he was very interested in the ministry of George Whitfield. Warren Rearsby recounts one day Franklin received what would could have well been the most important letter ever to come to his desk. It was from George Whitfield. He wrote, "I find that you grow more and more famous in the learned world as you have made much progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity. I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mysteries." Of the new birth. It is a most important and interesting study. And when mastered will richly repay your pains. In fact, Whitfield's text was often this text that we're reading today. Someone asked him, because he was a brilliant man and knew the Scriptures and could have taken his text from anywhere in the Bible. Someone came to Mr. Whitfield one day and said, Why do you preach so much on this text? You must be born again. And George Whitfield answered, because you must be born again. The new birth is the theme of John chapter 3. The reason the entire Bible was written is what is unfolded for us here in these verses. Later, the Apostle John will write in his first epistle, These things have I written unto you that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. I want to us to simply this morning to see four things. The person, the personalities in this text, the problem there in verse two, the perplexity of the problem in verses three and four and then the the prescription. That's easy enough to remember. We'll hang our thoughts on those four things today. First of all, I want us to examine the person. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. We learned that he was both a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, which means he was a member of the conservative sector of Judaism and a member of the high court or the ruling council of the Jews. The rabbis taught in the rabbinical writings that that Nicodemus was one of the three richest men in Jerusalem. Now, I'm surmising here, if he was one of the three, I would venture to say that one of the others was Joseph of Arimathea, although I can't prove that. We do know he was a wealthy man as well. Do you see how every sector of society was becoming interested in or touched by the ministry of the Lord Jesus? The Pharisees were very strict in their interpretation, not just of the Bible, but of the ceremonial law of God. And they added to them in the rabbinical commentaries, the washings and how many steps could be made on the Sabbath and so forth. And they were very strict in interpreting because they put the rabbinical writings on the same level as the law itself. We seem to think, no doubt due to preachers' descriptions of the Pharisees, and in our attempt to show that salvation is not of works, but wholly of grace, we tend to, I think, portray them erroneously as all being the same, as largely harsh and hypocritical and mean-spirited people. But that's a broad brush caricature of the, the Pharisees. There were many, many sincere and earnest Pharisees. The Apostle Paul was one, and we could, we could give other examples. Because of the universality of human pride and, and works, all of us have these negative traits to some degree. And those who hold religious beliefs often hold them very sternly, very uh, firmly. And so that is seen in, in any area of life. At any rate, Nicodemus comes across here as very sincere. Now let me just say that sincerity alone, although it may be commendable, and it may be uh, something about Nicodemus that we should note. Sincerity alone doesn't make us all right. It doesn't make everything... You can be sincerely wrong about a lot of things. I, I just drank from that water there. Uh, that that was a gamble, wasn't it? Because from the time I put it there, which was before Sunday school, and to just a few moments ago when I took a sip, anything on, could have happened. Some of you could have slipped something in there. You know, I don't know. Uh, there could be some arsenic in there. Uh, time will tell if that takes place, but i 'm just saying uh, I sincerely drank of that glass of water didn 't have with all the uh, i, I don 't expect there was any guile here that there 's anything wrong with it that it 's uncontaminated. but let 's just uh, say here I could be sincerely wrong, and my sincerity would not change the fact that the water was poisoned. that's a horrible thing to think about here. I just don't know why that thought of sincerity came to me, that I sincerely drank of it and I'm sincerely hoping that that it was uh, clean water. At any rate, Nicodemus is sincere. Some have surmised that his coming at night showed his uh, cowardness, for example. And I don't think that shows that at all. I think Nicodemus was so being drawn by the Holy Spirit, he was so concerned about his soul and his future. And could this be the Messiah? He, and we already have just noted that Jesus was performing miracles and doing. the crowds were beginning to flock to him. He came at a time where he could get an audience from Jesus Christ. He wanted a counseling session. He wanted to sit down one-on-one and, and ask him some pressing questions on his heart and mind. And that's very commendable. Please please if you don't if you leave without anything else that I say here today, please don't leave the questions of your eternity and the soul unanswered, whatever you believe about what I'm saying here today, you owe it to yourself eternally to consider what is discussed here in this text and is Dr. Whitfield purportedly wrote to Benjamin Franklin, you really ought to investigate along with electricity and all the other wonderful things that you're doing, you really ought to investigate the matters of the soul. The most important matters to investigate are what the Holy Spirit records for us here. He came at a time when he could have Jesus' full attention, I believe. A work had already begun in his life. The work of the Spirit. This is a counseling session that we are party to. I love, there's several. This one, and we'll see the woman at the well. The rich young ruler. We eavesdrop on our Lord's personal workings one-on-one with people. And with that we learn how to tell people about what saving faith is, and we get our questions answered as well. Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit takes us to, to the upper room and we get to hear Thomas saying, we don't know where you're going and we don't know how to get there. Aren't you glad that we can eavesdrop there? And Jesus said to Thomas, well, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. If any man goes to the Father, he'll have to come by me. Aren't we glad that... Others' questions are answered for us. I was one of the students Sometime, if you can imagine, that I didn't always like to talk. I was somewhat shy. And I was always glad when someone asked a question that I had that I didn't have to answer it because I got the benefit of the answer from the teacher or the professor. And so here we get to go along with Nicodemus by the grace of God and to hear this conversation about the most important matter in all the world, the matter of the soul. He knows there's life more to life than being a member of the the most important ruling body among the Jews I mean he had arrived what a what a privileged position that was to be it would be like being on our Supreme Court in our government here I, for for just comparison I mean you you're at the top when you get there if you're a lawyer and in, in Judaism of that day to, to to sit on the the Sanhedrin you didn't go any farther than that unless of the high priest and so what a and yet Nicodemus came to the place, is this it? Because there's a great hole of emptiness in my heart, in my, my mind, in my soul. There's got to be, is there something else? And I think every person, if they think deeply and beyond the surface of things, have to wonder, what, what about these things? It would be a fool not to, to research the claims of Christ. The matters of the soul and eternity and what happens beyond this life. What is salvation? Is there salvation? If so, how is it obtained? These are, these are not just whether you're going to take out a new insurance policy or move stock from one thing to another or change careers or move to a new section of the country or even other important things that we could talk about. This is where you will spend all eternity once you leave this life because this we know. It is appointed unto man what? wants to die. We've had five funerals in our fellowship this week. Whatever you think about death, it happens. It comes to every home. There is not a home in this congregation that is exempt and it will come at last to you. There is an appointment that you will keep that not all of your influence or education or standing Our our attainments can change. There will come a time when you will leave this life. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, what about that? After this, after this life, after the soul has left the body, then what? He knows there's more life than this life of pain and sorrow. And it, it, those who've lived a wonderful life have shed tears all along the way. You've had burdens. You've had misunderstandings. There's not a person in the sound of my voice, that there's not things in your life, there's areas in your life, there are relationships that you can't fix, you can't change. You can't. This is not all, there's got to be something else. And when you look in your own heart, you see how far short you fall of your own standards, your own goals for yourself, let alone those that the Lord may have for you. At some point, he knows that he will slip from this life. And then what? As a Bible scholar, Nicodemus should have known some of these answers. In fact, Jesus is not being unkind. He says, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know? It shows you that degrees in theology doesn't necessarily equip you to answer this question. Are you a teacher in Israel? He he knows it. The prophecies of the Messiah coming. And he's fully informed of Isaiah's writings in that glorious 53rd chapter. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He made his grave with the rich. All those prophecies of Isaiah are fulfilled in, in John's Gospel. And so he comes at night so that he can have Jesus' full attention, I believe. And he comes in calling him rabbi, teacher. No doubt the Sanhedrin had been meeting about this teacher from Nazareth. They were already deciding what they should do, if anything. Some were saying, let's wait and see. Others were saying, we must put this to an end or we're going to have a problem with our hands And this latest incident of his having the audacious gall to come into the the court of Gentiles and turn over the money changers' tables and to set the sacrificial animals free. By what authority? Who do you think you are, they asked, to do this? As we noted last week, it's very amazing. They didn't do anything to him. They didn't stop him. The Levites, the, the temple police were there. They could have arrested him. But they... We're held back from doing that. It was not His hour. He was God. It was His house. He had the authority of God. In fact, he always, Jesus always takes it to the eternal. Remember what His answer was when they said, Who do you think you are that you can do this here? And Jesus said, Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three, three days. They looked around. Herod's temple had been 40 something years working on it. They were hammering and chiseling as they spoke. It wouldn't be finished until 70 A.D., where it would finally, at the same time, be destroyed by the Romans as they ransacked Jerusalem. What do you mean? You see, we always go to the finite and the tangible, what we think and what we feel. Jesus always, when He answers our questions, takes us beyond the realm of this life and and death and life and eternity. I think it's interesting. We see there in verse 2 that Nicodemus says, We know. He's by himself, but he uses the plural pronoun we. Because no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. Some have surmised that he's coming on behalf of the Sanhedrin. And that in fact, because the Sanhedrin said we need to do some investigating, we need to send a group to, to interview this guy and see where he's coming from, I think... Nicodemus volunteered, not for the Sanhedrin's benefit, but because of the gnawing, nagging hole in his own soul. I must find out who he is and what he's come to do. Others have said that he represents he and his friend that we'll meet later on, Joseph of Arimathea. The Bible tells us that Joseph offers his tomb for Jesus, another wealthy man who already had his mausoleum prepared for the family burial place ready. And some have said that that Nicodemus and Joseph have become a society of two. And they're searching, and they're seeking, and they're asking questions. And he's coming on behalf of his friend Joseph. Regardless, he's coming on behalf of others. The Bible tells us in in John chapter chapter 19, and after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, he has become a convinced follower of Jesus by the time of his death. But secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. And he came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus which at the first came to Jesus at night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. And they took the body, the most tender picture in all the scripture, as those two wealthy followers of Jesus Christ, gingerly taking the riven body, the beaten, mutilated body of our Lord down from the cross. They wound it in the, the linen strips For the preparation, in between those linen strips, they would layer it with these embalming things to to, to stop the decay and the smell of the body. They wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now, in the place where he was buried, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, a new grave, wherein was never yet a man laid. And there they laid Jesus. That's the person who comes to Jesus at night. But I want you to know, I want you to, as we're doing this this interview with Jesus, you put yourself in Nicodemus' place. You go in this conversation and you enter in to this interview. Secondly, we see the the problem. The problem is spread not only from Nicodemus, but it's one we all have in common. And it's the problem of lostness, of our fallenness. That as human beings, we're born sinners. We do not have to be taught to sin. We, we sin readily, by choice, because it is our nature. And that's the looming problem. Notice that though Nicodemus says we, Jesus brings it back to personally. Have you ever had somebody come to you and says, my friend wants to know, and they want to ask you a question about their friend, and the wise person, you know, say, well, you can tell your friend... Jesus always brings it down to us. The lost people are not out there somewhere. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not even one, the scripture declares. And Jesus, when he says this pleasantry, Nicodemus says, We know you're an outstanding teacher, and nobody can do what you're doing unless he be supernaturally endowed. And Jesus stops him right there. It seems incongruous the response of Jesus to Nicodemus doesn't seem logical in just a cursory reading of the Scripture. Nicodemus is beginning with his pleasantries. He's sincere. I think he's an earnest, sincere man. He's not being, who do you think you are, as the people were at the money changers being overthrown. He's earnest. And he says, we know that you must be from God. For nobody can do what you're doing except God be with him. Now, Jesus has the ability that other human counselors and uh, those who counsel with those about their souls don't have. I cannot look into your soul as your pastor. Or you cannot look into the heart of someone you're dealing with and see what's really there. But Jesus could. And Jesus knows that Nicodemus is wondering, is this the Messiah is this the promised Son of God? Because look at, look at His answer. And He says, Verily, verily I say unto you, in verse 3, Except, there's a condition here, a man be born again, he cannot see, he cannot enter into, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You, Nicodemus, not we, you must be born again. Nicodemus was a man, no doubt of, impeccable character you did not sit where he sits with his position on the sanhedrin without being impeccably morally concerning his morality he had to be an absolute bible scholar no doubt he had most of the scripture committed to memory so vast was his knowledge zeal, a seeming hunger for spiritual truth. And though he was a high-ranking religious leader and tried sincerely to live by the Old Testament laws, and and as the Pharisees, you could not get a more picture of sincerity. The problem, that without sugarcoating the problem, Jesus plainly and up front tells him that he is in spiritual darkness, that he is unable to enter into the kingdom of God. You see, he knows that Nicodemus, somewhat as sincere as he is, is hoping, leaning on his attainments. Surely if that's got to count for something, you know, in the back of his mind. And Jesus is stripping all that away. Nicodemus, there's nothing of, of spiritual attainments on this side of heaven that you can attain that will get you into heaven. There has to be a miraculous event. You have to be born again. Well... That becomes the perplexity. How is that to be? We learn an important truth here that salvation of the new birth is not a product of religious observance or performance or attainment, no matter how sincere the individual may be. The new birth is not a work of human attainment or it's not a religious system or joining something. It is a miraculous supernatural work of the Spirit in the soul of a person. Notice here that before Jesus explains salvation, you and I have been taught and would probably start from verses of Scripture, whether even in the Old Testament that show about God's desire to save the lost and and what salvation is. But before Jesus explains salvation, He bluntly announces to Nicodemus the need for it. Because most people don't realize they need what they really need. They want the byproducts of salvation. Take away this hole in my heart. Give me peace so that when I put my head on the pillow at night, I can rest. I need some assurance that when it does come my time to die, that, that things are taken care of. Like the rich young ruler, he had a checklist and he was sincerely thought he'd checked it all off. But in case I've missed something, tell me what it is. Jesus Bluntly and plainly tells Nicodemus the need, not what to do. We see, we always want the problem solved. We get on down the road before we ever realize why we're here. Nicodemus, you must be born again. The absolute necessity of regeneration, which is incongruous to our thoughts. Nicodemus is a grown man. and I can just see him looking at himself. And he asked what you might think is a stupid question, but Jesus brought it up. He said you've got to be born again, and he says, "How can that? I mean, how can that be?" And he gets very graphic, doesn't he? Are you to tell me that and he's absolutely totally confused. May I submit to you that the Lord can take his word and straighten out people's confusion. Sometimes we rush to give explanations and try to help God out when His Word is sufficient to to do the work it's appointed to do. We want all the facts and figures and details. And and Jesus just says, Nicodemus, you've got to be radically changed. You've got to be born again. He isn't here playing tricks with Nicodemus or intellectual gymnastics. The underlying problem of Nicodemus and all of us is so deep so pervasive, so prevalent, that it will take an a, a absolute regenerating miracle from on high to change it. Notice that when Nicodemus learns about the necessity of the new birth, amazingly, he does not ask why. He asks how. And I think that's noteworthy. He doesn't begin to argue with Jesus and say, now what are you talking about? I've been a Pharisee here now for 30 or 40 years. There, I've been on the Sanhedrin for... for he doesn't begin to, to give all of his credentials and ask, how does that not measure up? I know what the Old Testament teaches. I live by it. I eat clean. I don't eat anything that's not kosher. I wash my hands. I don't walk any farther on the Sabbath He would go... He didn't do any of that. He didn't say, you mean all of that is for nothing? He didn't say... As some responded to Jesus when He told him about this. Some responded to Jesus, we'll have you know we're Abraham's seed. As if racially, they would go to heaven when they died just because they were a Jew. I know some Baptists who think because their parents were deacons and pastors and they've been Baptists all their life, that that's a ticket somehow to get into heaven. We all here experience, all have to experience, and everyone here, that if you're here, have have experienced a physical birth. And let me just go and add, you had nothing whatsoever to do with it. I guarantee you, if I'd had a vote in mind, it would not have been on December the twenty-third. Chris, would you? Have you noticed, Chris Gillen and I have the same name and the same birthday? Isn't it that amazing? It's, that's got to be something. I don't know what it is. But would you have voted to have a December twenty-third birthday? Somehow or another, it gets all kind of wishy-washy in there, doesn't it? And, and you want to say, is this my birthday gift or is this my Christmas gift? And I'm just joking here. But I had nothing to say about that. John and Sarah Lamb didn't have any, Asked for my input, you know, they had nothing, I had nothing to do with it. It will take a spiritual birth. It took a physical birth to put me into the Lamb family. It will take a spiritual birth to make me a candidate for the spiritual world beyond this one, to put me in God's family. We inherit from our parents a sinful nature. And we, we reproduce after our kind the children that kathy and i brought in this world they have all kinds of things my brother recently sent off you know that now all the rage is is, just trace back your background and uh he he sent my brothers and i were were talking and somebody said one of us ought to just send in the little dna sample and find out what all the ethnic backgrounds that, that we have in us and so uh I knew if I waited long enough, one of them, their curiosity would get them, and they could do it, and guess what? Whatever their DNA is, it would be, it would be mine, you know? And so he emailed it t- to me recently, and it talks about, you know, how much uh, this and that and the other. And, uh, and I stupidly, because he's the genius in the family, I stupidly responded to said, So I guess this means that this is the same for me as it is for you. And he's just answering back, yep, <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. All that same, that DNA we inherit from our parents, but you know what? We reproduce after our kind, and because we're sinners, we reproduce sinners. No amount of religious knowledge, no practice, no deeds, no meditation, or mental enlightenment can turn us into a spiritual being. There must be a birth, a work of the Spirit from within. Jesus said, You must be born again. So, there's a very real problem here with a humanity, uh, with no human remedy. We not only see the person involved here, Nicodemus asking, aren't you glad he came to Jesus and asked these questions and Jesus told him these things? We see the problem. But I, I also want to notice the perplexity here because we, we can cry with Nicodemus in verse 9, how can these things be? How- I can't understand what you're talking about, which shows you that salvation is of the Lord. It's not from human reasoning. You can't put it in a test tube. You cannot put it on a graph or do scientific research. The soul is uncharted territory that God has veiled off from human uh, intervention with. But He speaks to the heart. He speaks to the soul. The Holy Spirit must give this life to our souls. John Phillips writes, the life he imparts is the life of God. God made human beings to be inhabited by God. The human spirit was to be inhabited by the Holy Spirit. When sin came in, the the spirit went out. And through the miracle of the new birth, sin is cleansed. The Holy Spirit returns to inhabit the human spirit and spiritual life begins. This is a miracle. Our Lord tells Nicodemus about two different worlds. He he illustrates what he's talking about here. He tells him about the physical world and another world which is just as real, the spiritual world. We see there in verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh. And whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit of God. Now, Nicodemus is asked, how can these things be? And this is what Jesus answers him with. The wind operates by its own laws. There's no law of Congress that can dictate the winds. If so, the, the legislature of Alabama would have outlawed tornadoes, wouldn't they? We have no authority, no legislation of controlling the winds, the paths of the wind. It goes by its own course. It does not answer to a man or, or blow when and where a man wants it to. I've been out working sometimes on a very hot August day and wish the wind would blow and no, no, no hope in sight. I've been doing some things where I wish the wind wouldn't blow and it has blown the picnic table and everything else out of the way. You know, It does what it wants to. The paths of the wind are mysterious to us. We, we see the effects the results but we cannot tell its beginning or end amazingly by god's in intervening design the the word in both greek and hebrew for the words wind and spirit are identical both the wind and the spirit are invisible they both can be sensed. They can be uh, sensed the, by their effects, the results, but, but only a little is known by humans about all the mysteries of the, of the wind, and even less about the mysteries of the Spirit. We can look out at a tree, for example, and with its limbs bending and twisting and the leaves falling, we see the effects of, of the wind. We can look in, into a person's life, and, and, and by their deeds or their words or their actions, we can see the effect of the Spirit's work in their lives. In fact, Jesus gives that is a very telltale sign of whether the Spirit has done a work, a miraculous work, by their fruits that they produce. You shall know them. There will be a cause and effect. If the Spirit has been at work, there will be... There will be evidences of it. Uh, un, undis, un, arguably, there will be evidences of it. He, Nic, What Nicodemus did not know is that the wind and the Spirit was blowing deep within his soul and drawing him to the Savior. The very fact that he was there shows that the Spirit was at work. He wasn't here at night by mere, mere curiosity or at his own whim. He was being pulled by the Holy Spirit's work to Jesus Christ. And that's how the Spirit always works. He draws us to Himself. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus' response is, how? Some are confused by our Lord's words in verse 5. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Some have taught that that... uh, means in biographically the physical birth the breaking of the the waters and the, all that's associated with the the fertilization of the the egg and so forth that that's the water and the the, the the breaking of the waters when a baby is born you must be born of of water into the spirit others point to baptism but but that cannot be the the, the baptism has not been given john's baptism was for repentance And so the baptism as we see it in the church has not been, there's no precedent for it yet. So what does it mean? Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand this truth. He would not have used this truth if he not expected him to know it. It must have been something with which he was familiar then. Water and the Spirit in the Bible often symbolically in the Old Testament refer to the spiritual renewal and cleansing. There are many, many verses that teach that. And one of the most Beautiful passages in all the scripture describes when Israel will be restored to the Lord by a new covenant. God says through Ezekiel, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. He's, he's, he's exactly describing the converting, the regenerating work that goes on in a believing heart. I will remove your st- your heart of stone and from your flesh, and will give you a, a, a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And see, the Old Testament believer, the Holy Spirit did not d- indwell the bodies of believers. When David sinned, he prayed that God would not take his spirit from him. But Jesus tells his disciples, the spirit is now with you and will be in you. And that's what took place on the day of Pentecost. And here he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you, the spirit entering into the heart and regenerating a person, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 24 through 27. Surely this was the passage that Jesus had in mind when he's referring to Nicodemus about the washing in the Spirit, which Nicodemus would have been well acquainted with it. And against this Old Testament backdrop, against the Scriptures, Christ's point was clear. Without the washing of the soul, without the Holy Spirit cleansing us from within, this is a work that only the Spirit can do, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy has saved us by the washing and the regenerating of the Word of God. No one can enter into the kingdom of God without that supernatural, amazing work being done in the heart and life. There are several obstacles to salvation, and I'll just mention one or two. The major one is unbelief. Look in verse 11. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that what we do know, Jesus is speaking here, and testify what we have seen, and ye receive not our witnesses. We've told you the truth, and you receive not the witness. What is the stumbling block here? What is, what is the wall here? Their unbelief, which they willingly hold on to. We've spoken unto you, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Again, Jesus is revealing himself to Nicodemus as the Savior. I am the Son of God come down to earth. I'm not just a rabbi, Nicodemus. I'm telling you what I know. And the reason I know it because I've come from heaven to tell it to you. What I say to you is the truth. When I tell you, you must be born again, this is from heaven itself. And then he gives an Old Testament illustration. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You remember that incident? The children of Israel had gone into gross immorality and idolatry. and God was judging them and thousands were dying as a judgment for their sin. And he told... Moses, interestingly, to do something that his word, the, old, the, the, moral, the moral law of God forbidden. Of course, they're not to worship the serpent. But he tells Moses to make a horrible uh, image of a serpent. Is there anything more feared on earth than a snake? Not in my book. It ranks right up there, the things I fear. And on a pole, he put that brazen serpent because the Bible says, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Yes, Do you remember the graciousness of the Lord when, when Moses came through the camp with the, the serpent on the stick? All he said, look and live. Those who look to the, to the, to the, the serpent on the stick, a horrible ugly picture but i want you to know what took place when christ was lifted up there was a horrible ugly despicable picture he's telling nicodemus that he's going to have to die for his sin just as moses lifted up the serpent jesus christ would be lifted up in punishment for our sin all who looked the serpent were healed They had to believe that it was true. You could have been there that day and said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Who ever heard of putting a a brazen serpent on the end of a stick? I'm not going to look at that silly thing. That's ridiculous. I've, I've never heard anything so silly in all my life. And you would have died. And today the message of the gospel goes out. Jesus Christ has died for your sin. He lived a sinless life. He was God in the flesh. He died for your sin. And if you'll look to Him, He will save you. He will cause you, by miraculous work within, to be born again. Not anything you do, it's all of His mercy and His grace and His work. Now, you can leave this place and say that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. That's, That's unthinkable. That's a fairy tale that's something men have made up. Back in Isaiah, the Bible says, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And it all boils down to this. You may be here today like Nicodemus and have that hole in your heart. That sense that things are just not right. Just, there's got to be more to it. I'm, I go to church I've I've prayed the prayer, I've signed the card, I've walked forward, I went to camp, I went to revival meeting. You go down the list, the litany of things that surely they've got to stand for something. And yet, if you look to Jesus Christ and Him alone to save you, look and live. Look unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, He says, and I will give you rest. Would you bow for prayer? Lord, the preaching of the, the cross is foolishness to them that do not believe. There's a big barrier of unbelief in many lives. They've never come to You on their own and believed in You to save them. And I pray you take Your Word this morning and do the work that You alone can do. Your Word is true. It It is life-giving. And I pray that Those whose hearts you've opened today, may they by faith come to you, believing on you, looking to you, not to this preacher or this church or some other device, but look to Jesus Christ. Lord, you said you were a Savior. I come to you. Lord, I agree with you that I'm a sinner and need to be saved. Oh, I pray, Lord, that you would open the hearts and draw those who are outside of Christ, just as you drew Nicodemus to yourself. As we see, he comes to saving knowledge of you lord we cannot persuade people we would do all that we could to to beg them to believe on you we pray that your spirit would do its work and we are quite confident we're not ashamed of the gospel of jesus christ we believe it is the power of god and salvation to everyone that believeth and so we commit this time and this message to you and would you bring to pass those who need to be saved And for those who are saved, Lord, we pray that you'd encourage them by the power of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name.